Hello and welcome to this edition of TGC Midweek. My name is Jacob and this week on the podcast, we're going to be launching into the second edition of our church government series, talking a little bit about uh, what is the PCA within the, the Presbyterian world and what does it mean to be a church plant within the PCA. Before we do that, we're going to a- ask a couple of questions with me at the kitchen table, both literally and I guess kind of metaphorically, is Michael Novak. Michael, how you doing, man? Doing good. Excited about uh, this week where we get to celebrate Easter. Yeah. So why don't you tell us what we got coming up for uh, Good Friday and, and yeah. Easter? Well, I've got folks on the line want to give a friendly reminder that we've got some opportunities laid out for folks to engage in fellowship and deepening discipleship and worship this week as we celebrate Christ's death and resurrection. The first is Good Friday. We're going to mm-hmm. have a Good Friday service at 6.30 at Lutheran High School. We'll be done by 7.30 so you can get the kids back home and in bed if needed, and it'll be a chance for us to come and remember uh, Christ's death on our behalf. That Saturday morning, we're going to have a hike and a picnic at Eisenhower Park, which is there just north of 1604 on Military Highway, and we're going to hike at 10 o'clock, and then uh, if you bring a lunch for yourself or your family, we'll have a picnic afterwards. It's a bring-your-own picnic, B-Y-O-P. <laughs> um, and then on Sunday, uh, we'll have our normal worship service at 10 o'clock at Lutheran High School, followed by an Easter egg hunt for the kids. We're mm-hmm. going to have 800 Easter eggs filled with candy and uh, invite them to bring their Easter egg baskets if they have them. If not, we'll have something there to collect eggs with and celebrate. We'll also have special treats for the adults, things like pastries, orange juice, good coffee, so Mm. that we can hang out with one another as the kids hunt eggs. So hope you come. Hope you invite friends. We'd love to see you. Yeah, this is a great time time of year to invite friends to church. Um, I love a good pastry, so can't (laughs) wait for that. Um, Okay, let's launch into a couple of questions before we consider the next part of our church government series. Um, so the first question is about, um, well, it just says this, how does the, how does the Holy Spirit and wisdom come together in, in the scriptures? So why don't we talk about that? And then there's a couple of follow-ups here. Yeah, a few thoughts on that question. Um, and I'm going to throw these thoughts out there and let folks just process them, kind of right. lay them on the table. Uh, but the first thought that comes to mind is the Holy Spirit is kind of a forgotten person of the Trinity, especially in our tradition, mm-hmm. in our denomination. Um, a lot of times, in fact, we refer to the Holy Spirit as an it, and the Holy Spirit is not an it, it's a he. It's the third person of the Trinity. Uh, he's a personal being uh, that is involved in our lives. And a lot of times in the past, theologians and scholars would call the Holy Spirit the shy person of the Trinity mm. because he is not meant to draw attention to himself, which is one of the mistakes that I think Pentecostals and Charismatics yes, make. Absolutely. Uh, the Holy Spirit is meant to draw attention to Jesus, to glorify and beautify His work and His person. And so we're not called to focus on the Spirit, but the Spirit is meant to lead us into worshiping the Christ, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And this is how Jesus talks about the Spirit. Uh, on the night before He was crucified, He's in an upper room with His disciples at the end of the book of John. There's extended teaching, and here's a few things He says. In John chapter 14, verse 25, He's talking to His disciples and says this, "...these things I've spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you." And then in John chapter 16, verse 12, 
Jesus continues and says this, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so um, Jesus is basically saying the Spirit's going to come. He's going to lead you into more truth. He's going to glorify me and my name. And then in Second Peter, you actually hear Second Peter talk about the Spirit. And in Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 21, he says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Mm. And so, in a sense, Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes, carries men along, and we get the rest of our New Testament mm-hmm. from the Spirit's guidance and direction. And so the way wisdom and the Spirit work is they come together by way of us actually having these writings in our hands where we can learn about who Jesus was, where we can see how the apostles applied the gospel to specific situations in the church's lives as we read these letters to specific churches. And I, I think the spirit and wisdom uh, come together in that way. So how do we live out um, the wisdom of God as inspired by the Holy Spirit? That's kind of the next part of this question. Yeah, having a conversation. There's a third person at the table here, by the way. Some of y'all need to know, and we need to thank Guillermo for being here and making us sound so good every week on Sunday morning and also here on the podcast And we were discussing this question before, and he made the comment, and I couldn't agree with him more, that wisdom in a lot of ways comes with experience, uh, comes with living life. I had a professor in seminary that once defined wisdom as skill in the art of godly living. And so it's reading the scriptures and knowing how to apply them properly in our lives. And it's something the Spirit wants to give us. And as you read the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Old Testament, you get the sense that God longs to give us wisdom, and He invites us to beg for it, to ask for it. Um, and I also think it's important to mention that wisdom comes in the context of community. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to have other folks around us, folks that have different experiences, folks that have uh, more life under their belt following Jesus. Um, and folks that can challenge us or encourage us, depending on uh, which way we're moving. And I think wisdom comes together in all of those different areas. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's definitely a lot of directions that we could we could take this question, um, but I think that's probably a good place to leave it for now. Do you have any final thoughts before we move on to the next one? No, uh, great question. Yeah, um, yeah I'd, I'd leave it there, and if there's further questions, you can send them in. There's a, a book that I would recommend to this question and asker and, and others that are interested called Forgotten God by Francis Chan, mm. um, all about the Holy Spirit and how um, sometimes in the church we kind of, um, we cheapen it, right? We or, There, I just said it, right? I said it. We, we cheapen oh, yeah. the Holy Spirit sure. a little bit, and, and we shouldn't. The Holy Spirit is God in all of his godliness. Yes. So, I, I love Francis Chan. haven't read that specific book, yeah. but that's great recommendation. Thanks for suggesting it. Sure. So this next question um, is about is about heaven and kind of how we teach kids about heaven. And the question is uh, sort of in light of lo- losing our loved ones mm-hmm. um, who are Christians, is it helpful to be able to point to scripture and to God's promise of heaven 
or it is helpful to be able to point to scripture in God's promise of heaven. Mm -hmm. And can you provide some scripture references to look up and that will provide sort of a basic picture of what God has in store um, for heaven? Like what, what is heaven? How do we understand that as Christians? Um, There's lots of material floating out there. I I think of the movie, uh, I can only imagine, which I think was a movie that I haven't seen um, that, uh, um, is based on a true story of a boy who maybe uh, passed into uh, death and comes back being saved on That's, the heaven is for real. Heaven is for real. Yeah. Okay, um, uh, you get some of these stories sometimes, yeah. um, and books are sold, and people are attracted to I it. Be honest, I'm really skeptical of those. Yes, and and rightfully so on one hand, but I think that it's hitting on something that we all desire on the other. Yeah. Um, that we want to know what heaven's going to be like. We want to be assured that our family members that we love are experiencing joy and freedom uh, in Christ. And so we gravitate towards these sort of things, but I think that they're unhelpful. And so when we go to Scripture, we see a few um, uh, ways that the Bible talks about heaven and the death of uh, the saints, um, but it doesn't give us a lot. There's a few passages that come to mind. The first is in Psalms 116, Psalm 116. This is what it says in verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. And so the sense that there is something precious in God's sight about the death of his saints mm-hmm. because they've lived faithful lives and they are coming to be with him um, in glory. Uh, and then I also think of the passage we're going to be looking at on Good Friday at Trinity Grace, where Jesus is on the cross and he's between two thieves, two robbers. And one of the criminals in Luke 23, verse 39, says this. Um, one of the, uh, It says this in, the, in that verse. It says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so this man wanted to be with Jesus when he came back and established his kingdom. But Jesus looks at him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, And it leads us to believe that this man was with Christ um, in heaven, uh, enjoying the freedom uh, and uh, and the worship um, and uh, the forgiveness that comes with that. Um, And then lastly, uh, as you look towards the end of the book of Revelation, you get a picture painted, and it's probably the best picture we have in all of the Bible about what the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like. Um, And we can paint between the lines a little bit, um, but I think just allowing the Scripture to speak about what that's going to be like is important. In Revelation 21, uh, beginning in verse 1, this is what John says as he writes. He says, "...then I saw a new heaven and a new earth." For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away." 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So we get a sense here that there will be no more tears. There will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain. Uh, for the former things that sin has ravished uh, will pass away and will be in a sin-free environment worshiping the Lord. And then lastly, I think a, a great place to go is the book of First and Second Thessalonians, mm-hmm. because this is a church that Paul writes to that was struggling with losing their loved ones and wondering what is happening. Mm-hmm. We thought Jesus was going to return before people actually died. And so they were confused, and Paul encourages them. And here's how he does it in First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And he's talking about those who have died. And I think it's a beautiful way to talk about saints who have passed away in the Lord. They're asleep. They're going to awaken one day again. Um, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive when Jesus comes back, we who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we'll always be with the Lord. And so it leads us to believe that when Jesus returns, he's going to be returning with folks that are with him, that have passed on in this life and are experiencing his presence. And their souls are going to be reunited to their bodies. And they're going to live in this new heavens and new earth that we get a taste of at the end of Revelation. And so it's really hopeful. Um, Folks that die in the Lord, I love the phrase, uh, they're they're just asleep. I know it doesn't feel that way, and we should grieve and and rage against death because it's not the way it should be. Mm -hmm. But we, we grieve as those with hope. Yeah. knowing that we'll see them again and they're with Lord, the Lord experiencing no pain, no tears, no mourning, but complete joy uh, in his presence. Yeah, that is, that's awesome. Um, I don't think that uh, the church teaches this very well today because I've been a Christian for a long time. and I don't know that I've ever really been taught about what the new heavens and the new earth mean to the extent that hearing you just talk about the fact that, the dead in Christ will rise. I mean, that's right there in scripture. Mm-hmm. It seems so shocking to me that um, the ultimate plan for God and his people is not this sort of um, kind of sing song spiritual thing that you can't really touch, but it is heaven and earth. It is the physical things perfected and restored yes. and the curses of sin pushed away and the air will smell better. Trees will be mm. more tree-like. Mm. I mean, everything will be its perfected form. Um, maybe there won't be mosquitoes. Yeah, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> um, but um, that is so true, Jacob, and you say it so beautifully. And I, I once heard somebody say that God doesn't create junk, and he doesn't uh, junk what he created. Um, he is in the midst of restoring all things. And I've mentioned it in the past, but I think that we're going to live in a new heavens and a new earth here. And we're going to experience different locations and geographies and continue to learn and even work 
um, as we worship the Lord in a sin-free environment. Mm-hmm. As Christians, we focus so much on the spiritual aspects of what it means to be a Christian, and, and rightfully so, because we worship God in spirit, and there's like we should focus on that, but we lose the, the sense that um, God created the earth, and God created everything in it, and he said that it was good, and that is important to him. Mm. And he will, he is working his plan of salvation to gather people to himself, one, but also to restore the new heavens and the new earth. Yes. Um, which blows my mind because, um, I've been to some pretty beautiful places. I've been to the Grand Canyon. Mm. There's too many people, but um, <laughs> other than that, it's like, I think Ron Swanson says a man can cry at funerals and at the Grand Canyon. <laughs> and that's it. I've been to the Grand Canyon. I've been to Glacier National Park. I've been Ooh. to some really beautiful places. And two things strike me about that. One, that the Bible says that we are his workmanship. When you look at the Grand Canyon and the Bible says we are his workmanship, that blows my mind. Mm. Two, that that is fallen and broken and can be perfected. Because it's hard to look on the Grand Canyon and the sun setting on the Grand Canyon and think that can be perfected in any way. But that beauty is affected by the fall. And that beauty will will be restored in the new heavens and the new earth. It's so beautiful. Let, let me say one last thing on that, Jacob, because you got my mind turning. In Revelation 21, as John describes this new heavens and new earth, he says this, The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth Chrysoprase and the eleventh Jacinth and the twelfth Amistith. Um, and the twelve gates were uh, twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Mm. It's going to be so beautiful um, that gold and pearls um, and um, and all of these precious jewelry are going to be what the streets are made out yeah, of. Um, it, it, in comparison, uh, the streets are golden. We're not even going to think about it. Um, uh, and I think that's a beautiful image to have in mind. There's also something to the fact that, that, that God's final place for his church and his people is a city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is someone who doesn't really love living in the city. Too much, that's kind of an interesting thing that like God brings his elect to the city mm. and this is the new Jerusalem and is where God dwells and the people that he's gathered to himself yep. live there for eternity. Yep. I love the city because I like law and order. Um, <laughs> and uh, I guess we won't have to worry about that city or country in the new heavens yeah. and the new earth, but um, it's totally interesting. Yeah. There's obviously great um, question. Yeah. Lots more that we could go into on this. Um, definitely something that I have more questions than I have, you know, good thoughts on it, but um, let's dive now into the second part of our church government series. So um, just to remind, to remind folks, um, if, you, if you didn't get a chance to check out last week's episode, um, go back and give it a listen. And, uh, but just to quickly summarize, so we talked about the forms of church government that you find out there at different kinds of churches. Um, and there's, there's congregational style, which is very much kind of the individual church kind of rules itself in a lot of ways. There's, uh, what's the word? A hierarchical, hierarchical yep. style. Um, where there's a very clear hierarchy of, mm-hmm. of authority and 
there's usually bishops and cardinals and things that where where uh, instructions are handed down kind of from the top. And then there's this third style called Presbyterianism, where it is uh, a layered approach where um, the church itself is governed by this general assembly. And then under that are a variety of presbyteries. And then uh-huh. within that is a variety of churches, uh-huh. which elect a session of elders who run the church, but then are accountable to to the Presbyterian. You can liken it a little bit to the way that our federal government is a collection of states, uh-huh. but then is is a part of this broader um, national government. Wow, um, a plus, Jacob. Hey, I was you are listening. Yeah. That's amazing. Hey, <laughs> uh, yeah, not just a hat rack. Yeah, who the thunk it? Good for you. Uh, um, I love it. Okay, so yeah, that was just a quick summary. Great uh, summary. Cool. So let's talk now about what is the PCA. Because I had never been to a PCA church prior to Trinity Grace. Maybe mm-hmm. a lot of other folks are in that same kind of boat. They're unfamiliar with Presbyterianism kind of, I don't know, colloquially, but just like what what is the PCA mm-hmm. within Presbyterianism? Yeah, Presbyterianism, as folks hear about it in our country, they probably generally think about the largest Presbyterian denomination, which is a mainline denomination known as the PCUSA. And if you were going to look at our uh, Presbyterian denominations that we have in this country on a spectrum, I think that putting the PCUSA on the liberal end of the spectrum, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, is where they would go. Um, They have made some decisions over the past few decades, um, specifically with regard to biblical sexual ethics, Mm -hmm. um, that have really uh, caused some folks in that church to leave that denomination uh, because they believe that they're giving up some of the truths of Scripture, and I agree that they are. Yeah. Um, were you going to ask a well, question there? Yeah, I, I, I hesitate a little bit on that. I grew up in a PCUSA church. Sure. And uh, from time to time we'll visit, and one of the things that I noticed last time that I was at the church that I visited is they had stripped out the last two sentences, two or three sentences of the Nicene Creed. Mm. So this is kind of uh, when we talk about the the liberal side of the spectrum within the church, this is kind of where, at least where I'm sort of, what that means to me is these core beliefs were starting to strip away the unpalatable pieces of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And the thing is, they're trying to be more palatable to the culture, um, but the denominations that are trying to be more palatable to the culture, it's ironic and counterintuitive that they're the denominations that are on the decline the fastest. Um, and so, um, it's something to at least think about and learn from, um, that the culture does not want us to become more like them. Uh, they want us to have a very clear, uh, witness and conviction of who we believe Jesus to be. Even if they disagree with us, at least they can respect us, uh, for holding, uh, true to what we believe the scriptures to teach. So when we hear the word Presbyterian, if you've grown up in the church, you might equate that to a liberal church. Mm. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the mainline denominations, you might just think it's a word that has too many syllables. Um, so what is the PCA within? Yeah, the PCA is a, uh, more on the right-leaning side, conservative side, uh, and so um, we um, would hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechisms, as teaching uh, what we believe the Bible to contain, mm-hmm. um, and uh, there are some denominations, Presbyterian denominations, that are even further right than us. 
um, and not necessarily on doctrinal standards, but on practice and practical standards like the OPC, um, which is really a sister denomination. But if you're looking at the spectrum, you have the PCUSA all the way on the left. You'd probably have uh, the eco-denomination, which a lot of those PCUSA churches are moving into, evangelical um, uh, oh gosh, I, I wish I could remember what eco eco stands for. Um, evangelical, I forget. Okay. Yeah, that's um, I but you can Google it okay. um, and find it. A lot of those PCUSA churches are moving to the eco. Um, a little further to the right, you'll find the EPC, um, where the EPC uh, holds to a lot of the same doctrinal standards we do. One of the main differences is they will ordain women mm-hmm. uh, into roles of leadership in their denomination on a church-by-church basis. They leave it up to a decision of the church. Uh, A little further right, you've got the PCA, which is us. Mm -hmm. Um, A little further right than that, you've got the OPC. Um, And um, a little further right than that, you've got um, some uh, Dutch uh, Presbyterian denominations um, and uh, a little smaller uh, Mm -hmm. than what the PCA is. And so we we say we're faithful to the Scriptures. Um, We... Uh, we hold to a biblical Christian uh, sexual ethic. Um, we hold the line in terms of uh, elders and deacons and pastors in our church uh, being males. Um, and those are some of the practical things that you'll notice are different um, from us to the EPC all the way down to the PCUSA. Yeah. Well, that's helpful just to give folks an idea of kind of the flavors, the, the, yeah, the spectrum kind of yeah. what's out there. And I've said it before, I like to I have to put things in kind of mental boxes before I understand the gray areas between the boxes, which uh-huh. is actually where the entire world exists. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just think that's kind of a helpful way to kind of start this conversation. Um, so within the PCA, understanding the Presbyterian style of government that we discussed last week and within the PCA, what does it mean to be a church plant? Trinity Grace is a church plant, and that's something that's a little bit unique from your uh, run-of-the-mill PCA church. What mm-hmm. does that mean to be a church plant? Yeah, church plant, uh, one of the things that is exciting about our denomination is our uh, desire and our focus on church planting. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there are dozens and dozens of church plants being um, established uh, right now throughout the country that are a part of our denomination. Um, and what happens is a presbytery, which is a local body of churches, the South Texas Presbytery is the presbytery we're a part of, ranging from Austin to College Station through San Antonio down to the border. They identify, they've got a committee called the Mission to North America Committee, which is our church planting committee. It's a men of, uh, a group of men, uh, about 12 to 15 teaching elders and ruling elders that sit on this committee. And uh, they identify certain areas within our geographical bounds in our presbytery that are ripe for church plants. And they identified the northwest side of San Antonio a few years back as just a booming area, uh, one that is going to grow by leaps and bounds over the coming decades, (coughs) and uh, decided that this was a ripe place for a new PCA church. And so that group of men uh, under the direction and authority of the presbytery decided to start a search uh, for somebody to lead that work. And uh, we happened to be living in San Antonio, uh, members of the presbytery at the time, um, and uh, approached us about um, the possibility of us moving up to this part of the city to plant this church. Mm-hmm. And so after uh, some discernment, um, lots of interviews and assessments, we decided that this is where uh, God was calling us next, love this city. Um, And so uh, we moved up to this area, 
and uh, took a good chunk of folks from Redeemer Presbyterian downtown um, and have thankfully seen more folks get involved in what we're up to here in this part of the city since then. Um, And a church plant is basically us trying to establish um, over the coming years and decades uh, uh, a real established church uh, with its own government, with its own uh, financial sustainability, even with its own property. Yeah. So the Um, way we're operating right now as a church plant, how is that different from just a regular church? Well, right now we're operating under the oversight of the presbytery. And so I report quarterly to this group uh, at the M&A committee. Uh, They set our budget. They oversee our budget. I'm accountable to them with ministry uh, decisions. Uh, But once we become our own church, we'll establish our own leaders in our midst, uh, ruling elders and deacons. And at that point, they will take over uh, the leadership and the oversight and the accountability that the presbytery at this point is uh, is exercising. Uh, And so it's a it's a Passover of uh, spiritual oversight and development and authority and accountability that will happen in the coming year or two. Yeah. Um, Um, By the way, every time you say. M&A committee, I have to remind myself that it's not mergers and acquisitions. Oh, <laughs> well, I have to remind myself and I don't watch it, but MMA committee, which oh, yeah. would be uh, dangerous, I yeah. guess. Uh, um, okay. So uh, what is the typical timeline for a church plant uh, within the PCA, or if you have information outside the PCA between launch date, yes, uh, launch Sunday and uh, the time where we are no longer under is there a, is that called something where we're no longer yeah. under the oversight of the Presbyterian we become our own church? It is. It, it's called particularization. Oh, that uh, just, that just rolls it off rolls the right off the tongue, and if you say it ten times real fast, it's exciting. <laughs> um, but uh, but it's when you become a particular church. Uh, in our denomination with its own leadership structure, its own financial um, sustainability. And normally it really varies. Some churches uh, are, are from launch date to particularization can take uh, upwards of a decade depending on where they're planted. Uh, specifically, a lot of churches have struggles with garnering the type of financial sustainability they need, mm-hmm. specifically if they're being planted in uh, urban areas that tend to be a little bit more uh, poor. Um, and then there's other churches uh, that are planted in uh, more um, economically vibrant areas. Um, and those churches, uh, I think our church is is one of those in our denomination. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in the suburbs of San Antonio uh, along the corridor of some of the biggest corporations that San Antonio uh, houses, USAA, Valero, Security Services. Um, and so uh, we uh, anticipate needing a three-year runway okay. uh, in order to become financially self-sustaining and also uh, identify uh, the leaders that God is raising up in our midst to lead our church. How did you arrive at that three-year number, or is that just kind of a— it kind of felt right. That's kind of the average okay. uh, in um, in our context. Um, three to five years is what folks normally uh, yeah. forecast. Uh, it can be a little more than that, depending on where you're at. And it can be a little less than that if you find yourself in a booming area and the Lord provides the type of leadership um, that you need. But it's interesting. Uh, Paul encourages Timothy not to be hasty mm-hmm. in the laying on of hands. Uh, meaning not to be hasty in the laying on of leadership. So we not only need to be financially self-sustaining, which I think that we're going to be this year, wow. um, which is super That's encouraging. Huge. That's a big deal. It is a big yeah. deal. And I'll use this as 
an opportunity to say uh, the financial update that you see in our bulletin on a weekly basis, that is solely internal giving. Um, I am no longer including external giving in those numbers. And so we are still receiving external support. Uh, But if you're a member of Trinity Grace and you see those numbers in the back of our bulletin, you need to know in 2019, we are only reporting in those numbers internal support. Partially to encourage folks uh, to allow us to feel the pressure, uh, in a sense, as we move through the year. Uh, But I'm always happy to share what kind of external support we're receiving as well if folks are interested in that. But just be encouraged um, by those numbers. Um, But... Also, we don't want to be hasty in the laying on of hands. It takes uh, some life underneath us to figure out how we're going to deal with uh, um, tragedies or challenges or roadblocks mm-hmm. and seeing how people respond uh, and the leadership mantle that they take up in those uh, difficulties, I think is important before we actually identify and recognize leaders in our midst. Sure. Yeah. Um I think that's all the questions that come to my mind. Are there any topics that um, you think are relevant to what it means to be a church plant that you want to cover? I think that's probably enough for tonight, and I'm sure we could put our heads together for next week. Uh, And if you've got questions, uh, please send them our way. We'd love to answer them if we can, um, if this piqued interest at all. Yeah. Uh, If it puts you to sleep, just uh, don't let us know. Uh, yeah, so I think that's probably a good place then uh, to wrap it up. Um, we plan on doing a four-week series here on church government, um, and we kind of had a rough outline, and things have kind of got moved around a little bit. So we'll plan on continuing this next week, and then on the fourth week, the week after that, devoting that time to all of your questions around church government. So uh, please email Michael or, or text those questions to the number that you find in your bulletin. Let us know what you're curious about in regards to church government. And uh, we'll devote some serious time uh, to going through those questions. So until next time, this has been TGC Midweek. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next week.